0: Support for Essential Tremors comes from the Big Ears Festival, celebrating 10 years with Los Lobos, Bill Frizzell, Edgar Meyer, and John Zorn. March 30th through April 2nd in Knoxville. BigEarsFestival.org This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds.
1: You hear at first one voice and then two and then four and it's a, a gradual accumulation. And uh, it becomes more and more complicated and uh, massive, and it's the kind of piece that's written, of course, for the marvelous acoustics of a, of a church, a Gothic church in England. And uh, I'm sure uh, if I ever had a chance to hear it under those circumstances, it would be even more moving. But even listening to it, uh, you know, in the in s- the master control studio of uh, a radio station was uh, moving enough, and I think. It's the kind of piece that you could even listen to in a car stereo or on your AM radio as you're preparing breakfast. Um, uh, you, You could find a lot of beauty there.
0: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. American-born, Japan-based composer and sound artist Carl Stone has been influencing and subverting both underground and popular music since the early 1970s, creating wholly new sounds out of old, as well as materializing them out of nothing, programming his own software tools through visual audio editing tool Max to manipulate sound. We spoke to Stone before a performance at Murmur in New York City in 2019. The first piece of music Stone chose as being formative for him was Spem in Allium by Thomas Tallis.
1: Speminalium is a piece that I first discovered back when I did a, a morning program five days a week, uh, you know, Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. on KPFK in Los Angeles. It was It's the Pacifica Station in Los Angeles. And at the time, I was actually the music director, and so I gave myself a drive time slot from 6 in the morning. And... Um, Uh, The orientation was classical music, and uh, while my musical taste was towards the very experimental and electronic, and I really loved composers like Stockhausen and Zanakis and so on, I didn't really feel that for the most part people wanted to listen to that kind of music at 6 a.m., so I turned to another interest of mine, which was in Baroque music, and especially music uh, before Bach, music from medieval times or the Renaissance era. And uh, the station actually had a very fine collection, and also there was um, a specialist in, in uh, Baroque and pre-Baroque music who also had a program. His name was Joseph Spencer. He had a program called Chapel Court and Countryside. And he was the person who told me about Thomas Tallis and about this piece. The thing about this piece is it's, um, it's a 40-voice polyphonic composition that's extremely complicated um, it begins. It's written for all male voices, believe it or not. Um, although um, the high parts are for young males, uh, boy sopranos, um, and um, the particular version that I grew to love was by the Clarks of Oxen, Oxfordshire, and they, fe- uh, the director of uh, the Clarks felt or had come to understand that the voices of boys, young uh, pre-adolescent boys today, uh, was a little bit lower than the voices would have been in the era of Thomas Tallis. And so he uh, actually worked with young girls and so what you the parts you hear written for uh, boy soprani are actually sung by girls, and it's a it's an absolute beautiful sound. Um, you hear at first one voice and then two and then four, and it's a, a gradual accumulation. And uh, it becomes more and more complicated and uh, massive and it's the kind of piece that's written, of course, for the marvelous acoustics of a, of a church, a gothic church in England. And uh, I'm sure uh, if I ever had a chance to hear it under those circumstances, it would be even more moving. But even listening to it uh, you know, in the in s- the master control studio of uh, a radio station was uh, moving enough. And I think it's the kind of piece that you could even listen to in a car stereo or on your AM radio as you're preparing breakfast. Um, uh, you you could find a lot of beauty there. But really, listening to the piece and looking at the score and seeing the intricacy of the work, it fascinated me. And I think in some intangible and maybe even tangible way, it had an influence on my own music, which tends to work with uh, aggregation. Of the uh, Especially at that time, uh, pieces of mine from that same era, like my piece Sukotai which starts simply with one harpsichord, and then through electronic means, I double the harpsichords to two, and then to four, and then to eight, 16, all the way up to 1024. And um, that mass of sound, that uh, aggregation of sound, you still have uh, vocal characterization in speminalium or the overall harmonic uh, progression of the original harpsichord piece but the smaller details tend to fuse together. And that phenomenon itself is very interesting. There's an installation artist named Janet Cardiff, who's done a realization of speminalium using 40 singers with 40 microphones recorded on 40 tracks. And in the installation, she assigned, so it's 40 tracks, uh, 40 track recording, And playback is through individual speakers arrayed around in a room. And so you can, through this uh, means of electronic separation in in a very different acoustic, discover really the the intricacy and the patterns in the polyphony. So it's very, very, very different from the way Thomas Tallis would have thought about it or heard it, certainly. But at the same time, I'm attracted to this as well because... In a way, it's also a kind of decontextualization, or, or I should say recontextualization, of the original music. I heard it first at the radio station at KPFK. The year would have probably been, well, I started working, I started doing the morning program around 1978. So I had been out of college for uh, three years. I graduated in 75, so uh, this would have been 78, in other words, when I was 25 years old. I had started doing music when I was at Cal Arts as a student. Um, and the first piece that I consider to be sort of in my professional canon, if you will, was right around the same time, 1977, and that was the piece Sukhothai, the piece for the multiple harpsichords that uh, that I developed in the studios of KPFK. So it was right around the same period. And although, I mean, when I talk about my piece, Sukhothai, the the regenerative nature of it and the fact that it's a, a pro- very much a process piece where the form and the content are the same and it develops through a, me- a method of recording and re-recording and re-recording, I usually cite Alvin Lussier as my uh, primary in- influence for that because of the piece that he did called I'm Sitting in a Room, which I had heard when I was studying at CalArts. Um, and, and that's certainly true, but now that I think about it, I think also that listening to pieces like Speminalium were also influential because they taught me to sort of think about the individual units inside of a mass of of sound.
2: Right. Well, something you said struck me, this this idea of sort of building up and, um, um, you know, the the totality of uh, the sound of a piece of music versus the individual parts. I'm curious about, you know, in terms of your own music, a lot of times you are, you're iterating and you're changing and you're looping. Um, and it occurred to me, it's like, you don't really need to know or identify the, the source material to get something out of listening to the music, Mm -hmm. but it does sort of, um, add a certain level of interest, you know, especially if like, uh, you know, all of a sudden you realize you've been listening to oops, I did it again or something like that. Um, how, how did you think about that early on in terms of, uh, the, 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 the mass uh, effect that you end up with versus those little individual pieces?
1: Um, I, especially when I was starting out in uh, using appropriated musical material uh, as the basis for my own composition, I basically had two ways that I did it. One would be where you start with a completely recognizable source and then kind of obliterate it over time. And uh, hopefully people would find something interesting in that obliteration. Or the reverse, which would be start with something that is uh, essentially unrecognizable, and then peel away the layers or somehow, over the course of the piece, do what what is what we call today a reveal, uh, where at some point you say, Aha, Oh, so that's what that is. Um, so I, I tended to fall into, you know one or the other of these patterns when I was composing. now i i I don't follow those uh, so strictly. Um, and I'm not necessarily trying. I mean, people like to, I get messages all the time asking me, you know, is that what, you know, did you use such and such a, you know, do what piece from the fifties to make that composition? Or is this based on, you know, something by Share or, or something like that? And uh, sometimes they got it, sometimes they don't. And I actually think it's it to the extent that people are interested in that kind of thing. It's more fun to, um, find out for yourself rather than have me sort of lay it out in, uh, in text somewhere. It also occurs
2: to me, you know, I know, I've read about you uh, getting the assignment to, um, to like maybe you weren't digitizing, but you were re-recording uh, like an LP archive. And then, um, you know, a job at a radio station, I know from my own past, you end up listening to a ton of music it seems like that had to have fed directly into the kind of uh, music you've up making that sort of wide exposure, you know, wider even probably than a lot of people who do try to pay a lot of attention to music.
1: Yeah. I've, I've talked a lot about the fact that um, my experiences as a work study student at CalArts, um, really, they not only broadened my horizons in terms of the kind of music that I was exposed to, Because I grew up, you know, in the San Fernando Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And while I was uh, interested in a lot of different musics, I listened to folk music. And then that became an interest in um, operetta when I was, you know, six or seven. And that became an interest in opera, Italian opera, and then eventually Wagner and then uh but then the beatles came along and i sort of was secretly interested in them and then i listened to you know top 40 radio and then after that uh what came to be called uh well college radio but even before college radio there was fm radio which was just starting out and was uh sort of the the opposite of am radio am radio was oriented towards singles which you know a three and a half-minute single would be considered very long. Good Vibrations, when it came out, was considered sort of uh, almost operatic uh, in in its length. Uh, everything was two, two minutes, three minutes. Then FM radio came along and you would play album tracks that could be seven minutes, eight minutes, or even the whole side of an album. So I listened to that. But then when I started at Cal Arts and discovered the music library and began to actually work there, I, I found all these kinds of music that I really hadn't discovered before, like the uh, early pieces of Gesualdo or uh, other uh, Renaissance composers, although works of Bach, of course, and a lot of world music from Africa, from India, from Asia, because the teachers at Keller said, you know, brought all these in from their home countries, and uh, and of course a lot of contemporary twenty, what was called modern music, uh, contemporary music, electronic music, which really hadn't had access to before. So this was incredibly broadening, just to be able to listen to it. And then, in in my job, my job was to archive all these LPs in the music library for posterity because people, the, the library knew that the records themselves would eventually, they'd wear out or they'd break or they'd be stolen. And so uh, they archived onto tape. And uh, it was my job to make those tapes. And I started doing them, you know, one at a time, but that was very inefficient. So I started to do three at a time in parallel. And I began to sort of—I would listen to the three happening all at the same time, and I started to notice these collisions that were happening. And it was really interesting how this Renaissance piece combined with this string trio and uh, with some uh, pygmy music on top of that. You know, and so this also was extremely influential for me. I've talked about that uh, in my in my lectures and also in some other articles.
0: You're listening to Essential Tremors. After the break, we'll hear more about our guest's essential songs. The second song Stone chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Pachuco Cadaver by Captain Beefheart.
1: A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag is fast and bulbous. Got me? Then she began to dance. All the pachu start with holding. hands. So I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, uh, which is the suburb of Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. It was actually in those days fairly rural. And now it's totally developed, but at the time. You There were a lot of uh, almost like ranch size homes and I remember people would ride horses down my street sometimes and neighbors had chickens in their backyard. It was really like living in, in the country. So uh, Don Van Vliet, otherwise known as Captain Beefheart, although he started living uh, much farther outside of Los Angeles in the in the desert area eventually brought his band, the magic band to the Valley. I guess they lived on a sort of, uh, estate and he, uh, rehearsed the magic band there. So I've always felt a bit of camaraderie with, uh, Don Van Vliet. And at the same time, also tremendously interested in the music he was making in that era. The pieces that came out, uh, His first album, second album, and what I think is his masterpiece, Trout Mask Replica, which was a two LP set brought out uh, at the behest of Frank Zappa, who um, basically gave him the keys to the studio and said, do it. And I remember reading one story in um, Rolling Stone at the time, I believe, where he asked for a set of 10 slip, ten sleigh bells to use on a track and Herb Cohn who's kind of the money guy uh, behind uh, the record label said Don there's you only have five people in the band How, what are you going to do with ten sleigh bells and Don said oh we'll overdub which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, anyway um, Trout Mass Replica is a masterpiece it's um an uh, absolute uh, kind of piece that... Uh, it's a kind of LP you could take with you to a desert island because it is so rich in terms of form and especially polyphony and polyrhythms. Uh, the guitar work, the drums, the way the drums and the bass work together, the way the... Vocals uh, sort of sit on top of all of this. Everything is executed with great precision. And uh, I just love it.
2: Why did uh, Pachuco Cadaver stand out from from all the other tracks?
1: To choose Pachuco Cadaver was a little bit arbitrary, perhaps, because there are so many tracks that I love. But uh, it was actually the piece that I returned to most often because it starts out very angularly and uh, then over the course of its it's not that long of a track but over the over its uh, four minute or so lifespan it ends up being a really rocking piece uh, with very danceable rhythms which suddenly stop and then restart and then you're dancing away and then it stops and then it restarts and you dance some more and it stops and restarts and uh, for me, this is just a, a kind of wonderfully attractive, emblematic Beefheart track. Uh,
2: when would you have heard this?
1: I think I heard it pretty much when it came out. Um, I'm not. I'd have to look up exactly what year that was. But this was. I saw Captain Beefheart performing live, um, and then that was more in the area era of. His first album so i followed his progress and uh, trout mass replica we could look it up and see but i think because i worked in a record store um in the first couple years that i was in college uh, to make some extra money i think as soon as it came in the door i bought my own copy at wholesale <laughs>
2: But it sounds like your ears were pretty wide open already at this point. This wasn't a huge.
1: Yeah, even I, even though I was listening to as Top 40 radio and then eventually college radio, I was uh, through friends of mine. We all listened to uh, kind of out there music together. We went as a group and saw Jimi Hendrix performing in Los Angeles on the band that opened for him was the soft machine. And so we were really wowed by the soft machine and Beefheart, Frank Zappa, Kaleidoscope, Spontaneous Sound with Christopher Tree. Uh, we, we liked stuff that was really kind of on the outer edges of Uh, popular rock and roll as well as more we liked uh, Jefferson Airplane and then Janis Joplin and stuff like that too well you know uh,
2: Los Angeles I think people sometimes think about it especially in like the late 60s early 70s it's like you know the home of the singer-songwriters and there's this sort of you know rising uh, type of 70s rock but you know Beefheart was there and Zappa was there and, and these other bands you're mentioning too
1: Zappa of course when when uh, his first album came out, when Freak Out came out. Uh, that was another one that I picked up pretty much because uh, we read about it in Rolling Stone when Rolling Stone was still, you know, kind of covering uh, out there music. And um, we uh, ran into these people, you know, on the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. We were, you know, we were 14 or 15 and they were 20, so they were much older than us. Uh, but... Um, uh groups like uh i frank zappa to be sure mothers of invention the gtos uh, buffalo springfield jackson brown and so on and so forth were you know always uh present and available
2: uh i realize you can't believe everything you read on the internet but i did read that uh, at one point, you auditioned for uh, Zappa's label, Bizarre.
1: I don't know if it was for straight or for Bizarre Records, but we did do an audition for Frank Zappa's label. Um, it was uh, at the Whiskey a Go Go in the daytime. We were not signed by them, but we were given a hearty pat of encouragement. <laughs> and uh, that's as far as it went, yeah. What did you play? We uh, it was a trio, uh, keyboards which I played, bass and drums, no vocals. Uh, highly improvisational, where we'd usually start out with a precomposed. It was kind of like jazz. We'd start it with a precomposed head and then just sort of take it out and then bring it back. Um, but the harmonic language was more, and the instrumentation was more like rock. We were influenced by the Soft Machine and also the Grateful Dead. Kind of these long improvisation that meandered and when we were pretty high and uh, the other members uh james stewart was the bass player and the drummer was known then by his uh, birth name stefan weiser who later abandoned that name to become zev
2: that's part of the reason i wanted to ask about it because it sounds like something someone would make up that you and zev auditioned for Frank Zappos. We knew
1: each other from, I was uh, 15 and he was 16 or 17 when we first met. We worked together for a number of years uh, in that band and other sort of configurations, different configurations of that band. Uh, at one point it became a blues band. We called ourselves the Hog Fat Blues Band. And the singer of the Hog Fat Blues Band was Wendy Steiner, who later became Wendy Waldman who has a considerable reputation as a singer-songwriter.
0: The final piece of music Stone chose as being crucial to him was Chakana Raja by Sheikh China Mulana.
1: Ram Narayan, a great artist that I discovered along the way uh, from North India. Uh, His instrument, the sarangi, is this incredibly vocal instrument played. Um, It's a string instrument in the manner of a violin, but it's played upright like a cello, but it's uh, more the size, closer to a violin or viola than it is to a cello and with uh, main strings as well as sympathetic strings. And as I mentioned, uh, just his approach using microtonal nuance and expression, starting with one note, gradually adding more, and building, and building, and building. In a way, uh, over the course of 45 minutes, he does, in a certain sense, although it's not the mass accumulation of voices like you have in Thomas Tallis and Speminalium. In the same way, though, over a longer timescale, he has brought you in to his world in the same way that Thomas Tallis does and sort of brought you out at the other end into a kind of heaven that... Uh, both he and Thomas Tallis, who, of course, never met there from centuries apart and uh, geographically far apart, <laughs> even though Britain was uh, a, the colonial master of India, uh, perhaps at the early part of Ram Narayan's time. Uh, still in all, both of these musics, as different as they are, coexist kind of in the same uh, world of wonder for me musically
2: um what in particular made this um piece stand out among all the rest i mean and then is there a way that you have seen it um show up in your own work
1: like with pachuco cadaver which i chose in a semi-arbitrary way from a whole collection of beef art material this particular raga, although I, I, I mean, I certainly love it very much, I cannot say that it's the the only piece of his. I mean, it's really one of many uh, wonderful performances and realizations that Ram Narayan has done. This one I particularly like uh, because of the expanded time scale and the the micro the the slow way that he builds over the course of time.
0: This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore, For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.